It's true, Kenny and Kathy are some of our closest friends in the world, and we have known each other a long time. As a matter of fact, I knew him when he still had hair, and I still had hair. <laughs> and also, I have to say this to you. I had the privilege, I've had the privilege of being on many ordination councils, many. And Kenny's was one of the best I ever saw. So now you know, you not only have a pastor, you know his heart, but you also have a pastor who has incredible theological acumen. And I think that's something you should be very pleased about. Um, He asked us to share uh, this weekend on marriage, and I don't know if you've had these kinds of experiences before, but whenever you're asked to share on marriage, you find you're really struggling in your marriage that week or something like that. It's like the onslaught and so on. So we don't come to you as people who want to suggest to you we have it all together. We don't. Um, God wants to make us, remake us into the image of Christ. And I don't know how that is for you, but I know he's got a lot of work to do on me. And so consequently, we're people in process. And we're going to speak about the distance between where we're at and where we hope to be. And, And we want to do it without pretense. We want to do it honestly and authentically. So this morning, I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 18 and read it through the end of that chapter, and I want to take my remarks particularly from verse 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that you would give us grace this morning. Whether we're in a marriage or not, we're certainly involved in relationships with others around us. And oftentimes we bring to every relationship the generational sins that had preceded us. Help us this evening or this morning by virtue of your grace and your Holy Spirit to learn the art of leaving and cleaving. I pray, Father, that you would take the crumbs that are offered this morning and that your Holy Spirit would do with them something like what your son did with the five loaves and two fish when he fed the 5,000. And I pray, Father, therefore, that every person in this room would sense the affirmation of your love for him and her, that they each receive from you that which you directed particularly for them. And I pray, Father, that they would be affirmed in your love because of it. 
So fill us with your spirit now as we look to your word and we seek to understand its application in our marriages and in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Um, It's interesting when we go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see that God says it's not good for the man to be alone. You, You would think that the next thing that he would do would create Eve for the man, but he doesn't. He tells him to go name the animals, and it kind of looks like a non sequitur. Where's the logic in that? So we look at it, and, and Adam's supposed to go out and name the animals, and he sees this big, round, gray, rotund thing with uh, leaf-like ears, big leaf-like ears, a hose-like nose, and he said, that is an elephant. If I've ever seen an elephant, that's one. And then he looks over here at this other big, rotund thing, gray, big ears, long, hose-like nose, and he says, That is also an elephant, but he saw the differences, and he marked Mr. Elephant, Mrs. Elephant. Sees a long neck thing over here. He says, that's a giraffe. Yep, there's no doubt about it. That's the name that thing gets. And then he sees another one over here, and he says, Mr. Giraffe, Mrs. Giraffe, because he sees similar differences, though the animals were very different. And he goes through the animal kingdom, and it says there was not found a helper suitable for him. Why did God have Adam name the animals? And my my assumption is that when God said it's not good for the man to be alone, I think Adam must have thought, alone? What do you mean, Lord? I have you. What what, What more could I need? I think Adam was so fulfilled in his relationship with God, he had to be taught through an object lesson that there was more. And so God puts him to sleep. Why did he put him to sleep? God could have just said rib and made the thing and there wouldn't have been any pain for Adam. But I think he put him to sleep because he didn't want Adam interjecting in the process. How about a little of this? How about a little of that? And when Adam wakes up, what happens? The first thing he says is, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken from man. How many of you women would have been real excited if the first time your husband ever laid eyes on you if they had said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she is taken from man. I think there's a little bit left out of what happened in that text. It begins with a walk consecutive in Hebrew, which is like the word and, and it connects it to his last conscious moment. And so what was he doing in his last conscious moment? Naming the animals. And there wasn't found a helper suitable for him. And he sees the woman and he goes, this is it? Wow! Yeah, I get it. The elephant wouldn't do. The giraffe wouldn't do. This is it. I get it now, Lord. I had no idea. But being taught that, in fact, his first fulfillment was in God. If I, if I project onto Claudia that she would do for me what only God could do for me, and she can't do that because she's not God, I will project any disappointment on her, but that's my fault, not her fault. Human love is great as far as it goes, but none of us can love or be loved from another human being the way that God loves us. So we put first things first. But there are threats to the process. It says leave and cleave. We live in a broken world. And that broken world is full of estrangements. It's full of generational sins. And I think when God says leave and cleave, he's saying we have responsibility for the sins that have come down to us 
and potentially through us to others to deal with it so that we could be more Velcroed to the relationships he puts before us. So I want to consider that this morning, and I want to consider it primarily with two images. And we'll spend our time with these analogies. The first image or analogy is that our lives are like an old phonograph record, and in a fallen world, they get scratched, is what you can put in your notes. Developmental theorists like Piaget with cognitive development, Eric Erickson with psychosocial development, Kohlberg and Gilligan with moral development, assert that growth is preceded by moments of disequilibrium. Our present conceptual framework is not robust enough to count for the new levels of complexity, and therefore change is necessary. What kind of change is needed? Sometimes it's got to be a change of kind. We've got to throw out the old conceptual framework completely. Other times it's a change of degree, like a tree that adds more rings as it gains more robustness in its trunk. Our lives are like a scratched phonograph record, and we get stuck in the scratches. Remember those old phonograph records? For those of you that remember what a phonograph record was, when they'd get scratched, what would they do? They would go round, go round, go round, go round. My guess is in a thousand areas, you're doing fine, but probably every one of us has anywhere from two to five deep scratches in the record, and we can get stuck in those places developmentally. We try to deaden the pain of our developmental wounds by what I call anesthetizing behaviors. These anesthetizing behaviors don't get us better. We seek to deaden the pain of our wounds artificially. And consequently, they distract us from God who alone can heal us. And we think we can do it fine on our own. And our trust is not directed towards him. Why would we give up what's getting us by? when we don't know for sure that he can get us better. But you gotta let go of the anesthetizing behaviors. We engage in addictive behaviors. These are obvious addictions. There's drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, eating disorders, workaholism. And then there's some of the less anesthetizing behaviors, some of the less obvious ones. I've worked with a lot of biker type people, not a whole lot, but enough to have seen a pattern in their life. Every one of those hard veneer guys I ever met, when I got close to them, you know what I discovered? They had a marshmallow heart. And the hard veneer was something they put out in order to deflect people from getting to that heart. I know a guy who creates chaos in his life over there so that nobody will have the attention drawn to the chaos that's in his life here. The thing that's interesting to me is that as we age, we pick up convictions. And often the anesthetizing behaviors run against the grain of the convictions. We find ourselves in Romans 7. The very thing I desire to do is not the thing I find myself doing, and the thing I find myself doing is not the thing I desire to do. Who's going to set me free from this body of sin and death? Romans says Jesus will, but how? And why is it that when we develop the convictions, we keep going back to the anesthetizing behaviors? And I believe the reason why is because our wounds are deeper than our convictions. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. Can we get better? I think we can. Let me see if I can illustrate it with a story. This is a true story. It's not my story, but it's one I'm very familiar with, and it's probably the third worst story I've ever heard in all my years of working with people. There's a boy 
When he was about six years old, his mother died in childbirth. Psychologists tell us often if a child receives really serious trauma before they're psychologically developed, usually before the age of 12, psychologically developed enough to deal with the trauma, they begin to internalize it. Now, you guys know about C.S. Lewis. His mother died when he was nine. Well-meaning people at his church told him, if you pray for her, she'll get better. Uh, that, that, they were trying to comfort him, but that's, that's not good. You don't know that that's going to happen. So he prayed for her that she would get better, and she got worse. And they said, you've got to pray harder with more sincerity. And he prayed as a nine-year-old who believed almost that his entire hope of his mother getting better was dependent upon his prayers. And when she died, he felt in some ways responsible for that death, caused him to vector away from God. Children sometimes internalize these things. I think this boy, when his mother died, probably had some abandonment issues. Not only that, he's raised in a very large family, and it's an abusive family. They were physically abusive, psychologically abusive. I don't think they were sexually abusive. I don't know for sure. But it was an abusive family, and he gets the brunt of the grunt in this large family. When he's 17 years old, he's kicked out of the family, and he has to find his own way. He gets work, and he's clever. So he climbs up the ladder at his place of work, and when he gets to as high as he can get, given his limited circumstances, somebody at work filed a sexual harassment charge against him. I'm convinced he was innocent, but he went to prison for seven years. My college roommate, one of them, on his sixth anniversary, slit his wife's throat, murdered her. He went to prison for three years. This guy, for trumped-up charges, goes to prison for seven does he have some scratches in his record? You bet. Can he get better? He did. What was the process by which he got better? This is very instructive for us, I think. You all know the story I just told you. You're all very familiar with it. Whose story did I tell you? It was Joseph's story in the Bible. Joseph's about six when his mother Rachel dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. He's raised in an abusive family. Why were his brothers so abusive to him? They thought his dad loved him more. If anybody should have known better than engaging in that kind of behavior, it should have been Jacob, who's the unloved son of his father Isaac, who preferred Esau over him. And then there's some ambiguity even in the grandfather, Abraham, who struggled with the uh, relationships he had with Ishmael and Isaac. And the sins of the parents come visited down on the children of the third and fourth generation. And you, you have this in your life. You, I, I asked my kids, my students at Wheaton College, I'd say to them, how many of you can name all of your great-grandparents' names? Great-grandparents, first names. And very few can do it. And I say, you know what that means? That means you're only two generations away from being forgotten. But it also means you're living in the shadow of people whose names you don't even know. And furthermore, it means you're casting shadows for generations who will not know your name. And we're either people who can stop the process so we can leave and cleave, or we're people who participate in passing on what we've received so that other generations are affected. So Joseph ends up getting sold into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife comes on to him, and he runs from that, and what happens? She files a charge against him. He goes to prison. You know how the story goes. 
But when he's elevated second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, he's given the priest's daughter for a wife, and he has two children by her. And what he names the children are the sparks notes or cliff notes as to how he gets better. What is the first child's name? Manasseh. Does anybody know what Manasseh means? Is there anybody in here that ever knew what Manasseh meant? Anybody? You? You used to know what Manasseh meant? So what happened? If you used to know and you don't remember, what happened? What did you say? You said, I forgot? Well, guess what? I forgot is exactly what it means, and I knew we could draw it out of you. (laughs) Manasseh means I forget. And Joseph said, for God made it possible for me to forget what happened in my father's house. Doesn't mean he doesn't know the historical features. When the brothers come to get grain, he gives them a banquet and seats them in chronological order of their birth. He knows details. When the brothers come, 10 brothers come. They leave Benjamin behind. And he says, do you have any more brothers? If 10 brothers showed up to your, at your house, would, you, would that be the first question you'd ask them? Are there any more of you? You'd think, well, 10, that's a surprise. I'm amazed you got that many. Why does he ask them that question even? I think he's saying, where's Benjamin? What did these guys do? Did they sell him too? Do I have to find out where I got to rescue my little brother? He knows details. What does he mean I forget? And I think it meant that God enabled him to forgive to the forget place. That is, not where he couldn't remember it um, as far as its history is concerned, but it didn't hold him anymore. He forgave. C.S. Lewis said that he thinks, everybody thinks forgiveness is a good idea until they have somebody to forgive. He also says, when Jesus says, don't forgive seven times, forgive 70 times seven, maybe it takes 490 times to get past one deep scratch in your record. You have a long drive ahead of you, a couple hours maybe. Our minds will gravitate towards unresolved pain. You end up wanting to turn on the radio to anesthetize with sound. Don't sit with it. Go and enter into that anger all over again. Pray, God, help me. Enter into the tears of it all over again. Pray, God, help me. And then maybe after two hours, you bring it to the forgiveness place. A couple weeks later, you got a long drive again. It takes two hours again. A couple weeks later, it takes two hours again. A couple weeks later, it takes an hour and 45 minutes. A couple weeks later, an hour and 30 minutes. A couple weeks later, 45 minutes. A couple weeks later, three hours. You had a relapse. It's a process. It takes time. And God's grace is given lavishly, and it's given over process time. But you come to the moment, though, where the memory of the thing and the forgiveness are a single act, and at that moment, Manasseh's been born in your life. He has a second child. What's the second child's name? Ephraim. Be fruitful. Be fruitful. It's almost like saying, leave and cleave. Here's the process to leave. Here's the process to cleave. Get into your marriage and be fruitful. Enter into those relationships and let them be fruitful. I had a young woman, a student of mine, And she came bursting into my office. I didn't have office hours. She just burst in. She said, Jerry, I can't believe it. I was in chapel this morning. All of my life I have struggled with performance issues and relationships. 
And she said, today in chapel, the speaker got through to me and I realized God loved me just the way I am and I don't have to do anything to earn it. I said, we've got to worship God. That's incredible news. Let's pray. And we prayed and worshiped God for what she had learned that day. After we were done praying and thanking God, I said, I have a question for you. You said you've struggled with this all your life. What, 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 what's that all about? She said, well, I suppose you're going to tell me it's my parents. I said, I'm not going to tell you anything of the sort. I don't know. I'm asking the question to find out. Maybe somebody pushed you in a junior high lunch line and you bumped into the person in front of you. And they turned around and had some sharp, biting comment and you've been living in the shadow of that all these years. I don't know. She said, well, my sister thinks it's my parents. I said, it's amazing. I haven't said anything about your parents and you've defended them twice already. What's that all about? And the dam broke and she went on for 20 minutes. I marked it on the clock. She went on for 20 minutes telling me about horrible circumstances in her family where the father would give attention if she did well and he would withhold attention if she did poorly. She grew up in a missionary family. It was really sad, the stories. She's at tears, hot, angry tears at the end of the conversation or the end of the monologue. And then she says, I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive my parents. I said, that's not an option available to you. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, 20 minutes ago, you came in here and told me you learned that God loved you not based on your performance. You can't now tell me that you're going to withhold love to your parents based on theirs. The sign that you're getting better shows that you're learning how this grace that he has given to you, he wants to mediate through you so you can stop the cycles of generational sin and pass on something better to others. Well, let's move to another analogy. And the other analogy is I want to suggest to you that there are three rooms that all of us have to pass through. Three rooms. Now, if there's three, there might be 303. But just for the sake of analogy, let's consider these three rooms. The first room I want to call the goodwill hunting room. The goodwill hunting room. It's hard to recommend that movie because of the language. It's so bad. But I don't think it's gratuitous. It's probably the way people in South Boston would talk. But nevertheless, I think there's some images in that film that help me to make this point. Will Hunting is pay, played by Matt Damon. And, and he's a young man who is Einstein-level genius. But he's grown up in the foster system, abandoned by his family, horribly brutalized as he's grown up. He has a near uh, photographic memory. He loves to study and read, but he, he has not moved into the world where he would have uh, any, any employment beyond just hanging with his friends, and he works as a custodian at MIT. There is a professor there who is very arrogant. He looks down his nose at professors, I mean, at, at custodians, because he thinks he's really something. He has no sense of the dignity of other people. He has little dignity, sees little dignity in his students. And one day in front of the class, he says, I put a, a problem out on the board in the hallway. If anybody could figure this out before the semester's over, I can get you a job with six-figure income right out of graduation. But I don't expect any of you guys could figure this out. They come to class the next morning, and the problem's solved. He says, okay, who did this? Nobody answers. Next day, he puts another problem out on the board. And, and he says, okay, smarty pants, whoever you are, 
I got another problem out there. It took me two years to figure this one out. Let's see how you do on this one. They come to class the next day, the problem's solved. And the professor knows now he is in the presence of Einstein-level genius. Puts another problem up. And that night, he and his assistant are leaving late, and they see the custodian messing with the chalkboard. They go chasing after him to find out where he is going. Why are you messing with our problem? They come back and they realize it's solved. So they go looking for him, and when they go to the custodial section of MIT, they find out that this guy, this young guy, is now in jail because he broke his probation. He's got a big rap sheet because he's angry. The professor finally gets the court to release him to his care, only on condition that he can find a psychologist who will watch after him. So the professor takes him first to one of the top psychologists at MIT. And Will Hunting reads all of his books because he's a speed reader and photographic memory. And so he reads all the books before he goes in to see the psychologist and ties the guy in knots, smarter than the psychologist. So then he takes him to a Harvard psychologist. And Will Hunting does the same there. And on down the list it goes till finally the professor has no other option but to take him to his old college roommate, a psychologist named Sean, played by Robin Williams, the only movie Robin Williams ever got an Academy Award for. Now, the professor doesn't really care much for Robin Williams because, you see, Robin Williams made bad choices. He didn't go to try and get to the top of the food chain. He went back to the old neighborhood and worked with kids in that neighborhood. And he taught at a community college of all things. Can you believe it? And he takes him to see Robin Williams. And the kid ties Robin Williams in a knot. Robin Williams is left at the end of that session with his hand around Matt Damon's neck. Matt Damon says, I think the therapy session's over. And Robin Williams says to the professor, bring him back next week, I'll see him. Next week he comes back and they go for a little walk and they go to Boston Gardens and they're sitting on a bench. Swans are lazily swimming by. And Robin Williams said, you know, I thought about you a lot last week. Haven't thought much about you since, but I'm impressed by the fact that you are very, very bright. Einstein-level genius. But I think everything you know, you've learned from a book. He said, you've read about war, but you don't know what it's like to cradle your best friend's head in your lap while he bleeds to death in Vietnam. You've read about art, but you don't know what it's like to see the vibrancy of the colors on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and smell what it's like to be in that room. You've read about love, but you don't know what it's like to sit by the bedside of your wife while she's dying of cancer. And all the physicians know that when it says visiting hours are over, it doesn't apply to you because you're not going to leave her sight. Robin Williams says to Matt Damon, you're an orphan, aren't you? He hangs his head and says, yeah. And Robin Williams says, what would you think if I told you I knew all about it because I read Oliver Twist once? He said, I want to know you, and I can't get to know you from a book, and I'm all in. The next week, Matt Damon comes back, and 
He sits in the whole session, doesn't say a word. The professor comes and says, did you fix him? Professor wants him fixed so he could use him. And Will Hunting knows what it's like to be used. And Robin Williams says, he didn't say a word the whole time. And the professor says, is that good? And Robin Williams says, pretty impressive, actually. Why? Because he wants to know, will you abandon me too if I don't give you what you want? Robin Williams hangs in there, and most of the rest of the movie are the counseling sessions as Robin Williams and Matt Damon develop trust. And finally, after several counseling sessions and several uh, uh, days have passed, Robin Williams comes in and throws down on the desk a bunch of pictures that show knife wounds that Will Hunting endured, bruises from being beat up, scars on his arms where people put cigarette butts out in his arms. He throws the pictures down, and Will Hunting says, looks pretty bad, doesn't it? And he says, do you know about this? And Robin Williams says, yeah, actually, I do. And all of a sudden, you get the picture that Robin Williams has been a person who suffered, but he's turned it into an opportunity to reach out to others, very much empathetically aware of what they've been through. And Robin Williams says to Matt Damon, the most poignant words in that entire movie, and if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not your fault. And and Matt Damon laughs. I know, I know. He doesn't as long as he can laugh it off. He says it again. It's not your fault. I, I, I know, I know. It's not your fault. I know it's not your fault. Matt Damon just bursts into tears and falls in Robin Williams' arms. That first room, the Goodwill hunting room, is a room where you get to learn it's not your fault. The sins of the parents or visiting the children of the third and fourth generation, those sins that were committed four generations ago, three generations ago, two generations ago that have come down on you, those weren't your fault. Now we go to the second room. And it's a very, very dark room. You see, if we don't deal with what's come to us, we will be a conduit to these sad things towards others. It was Richard Rohr, the Catholic pastoral theologian, who said, pain not transformed is transferred. Unwittingly, we can take and normalize what was done to us, as painful as it was, and pass it on to other people around us. And when we do that, there's no leaving and cleaving. There's projection. There's transmission. And so on. I remember when I was a youth pastor, before Claudia and I were married, I didn't know jack squat about anything. I don't know very much more now. But we had this young family that was having problems with their family. And because I was a youth pastor, I was sent to go meet with them. And what did I know? I talked to the senior pastor. He says, well, have them write down on a piece of paper what they're willing to own was their part of the problem of the family's conflict. So I go there and I show up. One of the sons isn't in the room, but the other kids are there. And, and, and I say, please write down on a piece of paper uh, 
You're part of contributing to the family's problem. And the father says to the oldest son, you're going to need two sheets of paper. And I can see the son just wither. A minute later, the younger brother comes in. And I explain the process to him and what he needs to do. And the oldest son says to the younger brother, you're going to need two sheets of paper. And I saw the younger son wither. And unwittingly, we pass on what we've received. And so the dark room is a room where all of a sudden we begin to get the picture that we've done to others what we had loathed done to us. What do we have to do? Well, I think we have to weep and grieve. We have to be willing to go to God and say, Lord, forgive me. We have to be willing to go to the people we've hurt and ask for them to forgive us. And that's the dark room. It's an important room because it's a room that's essential to breaking the cycles of generational sin. And it's also the threshold of the third room. And the third room I'd like to call the wounded healer room. Because you see, as soon as I realize the wrong that I've done to others, I need to go back and ask forgiveness of the person I've hurt. But as I go back and ask their forgiveness, in my mind, not to them, I don't say this to them, in my mind, though, I know I was doing the best I knew how. You never say that to a person you're asking forgiveness for because it sounds like you're trying to dilute the request for forgiveness and you're not taking full responsibility for what you did. But as soon as you say, please forgive me, and in your own mind you say, I was doing the best I knew how, given the tools that I was given. As soon as you say that, the light should go on. Because what does it mean? The person who hurts you was probably doing the best they knew how, given what had come down to them. And it accelerates the forgiveness process when your heart breaks even for the person who hurt you. Because you knew they were doing the best they knew how. It's the wounded healer room. And you begin the wounded healing with the generations that preceded you, and you break the cycles, and you can learn to leave and to cleave. The whole process is a process that requires grace. The love of God is better than any anesthetizing behavior. The power to forgive is better than any anesthetizing behavior. The power to love others is better than any anesthetizing behavior. Anesthetizing behaviors keep you from the, from the process. So let me just end with this. A close friend of ours... His name's Jerry Sitzer. He's a theologian, historic. He just retired recently, but Claudia went to college with him, and she'd known him for years, and then he later worked at the church where she grew up. We used to meet together when we were youth pastors for lunch and so on. Some of you may know his name because of this wonderful book he wrote on grief after his wife and his mother and his daughter were all killed in a horrible accident that left the rest of the family wounded and so on. It's called The Grace Disguise. It's a great book. But, but, but Jerry Sitzer was a historical theologian, historical, historic theology he taught at Whitworth College. And Jerry Sitzer once said, we're most like God in the world when we're most unlike him in relationship with him. Let me say it again. We're most like God in the world when we're most unlike him in relationship with him. What does that mean? Well, God alone is independent. 
non-contingent, self-existent. He is independent. So what do we do? We go to him unlike him. We go to him in utter dependence upon him that we might go back into the world more like him, independent of the world, so we could be givers rather than takers. You catch yourself in a moment where you're being unlovely towards somebody, don't beat yourself up. Learn and grow from that event and go to him in all of your unloveliness and receive from him out of the rich reservoir of his love for you that you might go back into the world more loving. You have trouble forgiving somebody? Go to him and lather up in his overwhelming forgiveness for you. There was no price too high for him to pay. He sent his son and proved his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Go to him in your lack of forgiveness in order that you might go back into the world receiving from him and more like him in the world, more forgiving. You're impatient? Let the light go on. Say, I need more from him. You go to him with your impatience, receive from his patience that you might reinsert yourself into the world. In other words, leave the garbage by going to him and go into the world and cleave to those he's put you in relationship with. Let's pray. Father, none of us are real good at this. We're all novices. Yet in those moments when we're truly honest, we recognize we have a need. And we thank you that in your grace, you're willing to meet us in our place of need. And you're able to allow us to become wounded healers who know how to forgive and forget, who know how to leave and cleave. Give us grace as we go our way to that end, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen.